0: Where do you find true satisfaction? Our passage today has the answer to that. Let me invite you to turn to John chapter 6, and as you do so, to stand. I will read from John chapter 6, verse 22, to the end of the chapter. John 6, verse 22, and I will read to the end of the chapter. Let us pray. Lord, may we find in you complete satisfaction, amen. Let's hear God's word. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's Word. Well, it's a great joy to be in church together as we enter the Advent season. Like every generation before ours and every generation after, deep down we long for Jesus. So said one reporter on a CNN recent blog, writing about why millennials are leaving the church. Her point was that it is the peripherals of church dysfunction that put people off, not the person of Jesus who remains as always deeply attractive. Or whether or not her whole argument is accurate, the passage before us today does display the kind of magnetic power that Jesus indeed does still have, but yet at the same time that the real issue is not what Christians do or the church does, but who Jesus actually is. Well, we're beginning a new series for Advent this weekend, looking together at the seven times in John's gospel that Jesus declares, I am. And these I am statements are usually thought by commentators to reverberate with the claims of Jesus to be God himself. In the Old Testament, God had appeared to Moses and said that his name was I am, a name that probably is reflected in the well-known Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, or as it used to be pronounced in days gone by, Jehovah. So when Jesus declares, I am the bread of life, he is probably then, most would agree, deliberately referencing this divine person that Hebrew readers and his original hearers would have picked up. This reference is made crystal clear by the most famous time that Jesus said, I am, when in chapter 8 of John's gospel, he claims that before Abraham was, I am, meaning that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And the reference to divinity there was not missed because those who heard it first spoken tried to stone him to death for the blasphemy, not believing that he was the true Son of God incarnate. Now the reason why I've chosen uh, this series of seven I statements in John's Gospel for our Advent series is because right at the heart of Christmas is a claim to the identity of Jesus As the God-man incarnate, who is this Jesus? Well, we will find out as we listen to his I am statements. But I've also chosen this series of seven I am statements because they answer the most important religious question of our day. Those who want to be spiritual but not religious, in the phrase that has become well known with reference to those who are not sure they want to claim particular religious affiliation. Such folk need, first of all, not to think about church, but about Jesus. After all, the church, the Bible says, is Jesus' bride. And so our attitude to church is a reflection of our attitude to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, in this first I am statement, Jesus declares that he is the bread of life. What does he mean by that? To answer that question, uh, we will need to look at this I am statement in context. For John weaves into his description of this story three responses to Jesus' claim to be the bread of life. Two wrong, one right. The crowds, the disciples, and then the twelve. First, the crowds. So the story in the background is that Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with a small picnic. This was an astonishing miracle, and the crowds began to realize that uh, Jesus was at least someone special. Uh, They first thought that he was the prophet. That is, they recognized the way that this miracle echoed previous miracles of Moses uh, that had been done to their forebears. However, they clearly have the wrong idea about all this because, verse 15, they want to make Jesus king by force. And so their idea, the prophet, is a warlike king. Jesus is not this, and so he withdraws from them by himself. Jesus' disciples decide to cross over the lake, that is, the Sea of Galilee, verse 16, no doubt wondering where Jesus had got to and thinking that he might have gone back to Capernaum, which it seems was their early base of operations for their ministry. Suddenly, a great storm grew up, and then they noticed Jesus walking on water. Jesus steps into the boat, and immediately the boat appears on the other side. The crowd, realizing that Jesus and his disciples had left, followed in their boats to Capernaum, and they discover Jesus again. Now, this crowd is magnetically attracted to Jesus. But who do they think Jesus is? There is now a series of interactions from verse 25 to verse 59 that indicates what they thought. They were hungry for the wrong thing. Jesus explains their mistake in verse uh, 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, in John's gospel, signs play an important role as intended vehicles to carry people towards genuine faith in Jesus. And so Jesus' point here is that they're not following him because of the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, wondering what that means about who Jesus is, but simply because they were really impressed with the miracle, had had a belly fill of bread, and they're viewing Jesus as some sort of coin-operated dispenser of miraculous sustenance. There follows a series of interactions that are Jesus' way of showing the crowds that though they are attracted to Jesus, they are seeking the wrong thing. They're hungry for the wrong thing. So verse 29, Jesus tells them the works that God requires are to believe in him whom God has sent, that is, in Jesus That's the point of the sign, to cause them to believe in Jesus. But then, in a bizarre interaction, in verse 30, they then ask for a sign to prove it. As if feeding 5,000 people with a small picnic and going for an afternoon stroll on the lake of Galilee wasn't enough. Well, Jesus answers by pointing them to a deeper meaning the real bread from heaven is He Himself. They, uh, naturally enough, they want this life-giving bread. And then Jesus says in the famous I am statement in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But they do not believe. Why? Because the Father is not drawing them to himself. Whereas all that the Father has given Jesus, he will never lose. Again, the, the point is to believe in who Jesus is. Jesus says, for my Father's wills that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Well, this is all too much for them. And they begin grumbling. It's a word deliberately chosen by John, no doubt, to remind us of the grumbling of the Old Testament people of God after Moses' miracles. They cannot believe that Jesus is the bread of life because they know his dad and mum. Jesus again repeats verse 48, I am the bread of life. And then he adds that they are to eat this flesh, meaning to believe in him. It's metaphorical language, as you'll see in a moment, as he explains it. The crowds do not understand the metaphor, verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they ask? Jesus just carries on with the metaphor, talking of his blood and flesh. Again, metaphorical for believing in him, as he explains in verse uh, 63. The flesh is of no avail. I'm not talking about the flesh, but the words I have spoken to you are spirits and they are life. What was then the crowd's belief about Jesus? Well, they followed him because he was a miracle worker who could provide them with material sustenance. Once Jesus began to explain that following him meant believing in him personally, and it meant something for eternal life, and that he was himself the bread of life. That is, to follow Jesus was not just to get something from Jesus, but to believe in Jesus for his own sake. Crowds are not so excited. Perhaps they were spiritual but not religious. They did not want Jesus to be the great I am. He was Joseph and Mary's son, after all. How on earth could they eat his flesh? It was all too much like cultic religious mumbo jumbo. Now, if Jesus had just stopped with uh, giving them a big meal out of nothing, then they would have been quite happy and followed him. It's a bit like if someone in uh, Africa had managed to sort of conjure up a massive feast for impoverished people, and they'd all, of course, followed him, and then afterwards he refused to give them any more. They would not be best pleased. I like the true story of someone at Cambridge University who asked the proctor to bring him cakes and ale during his examination. The following dialogue ensued, proctor, sorry, no. Person taking examination. Sir, I really must insist, I request and require that you bring me cakes and ale. At this point, he produced a copy of the 400-year-old laws of Cambridge, written in Latin, and still nominally in effect, and pointed to the section which read, roughly translated from the Latin, Gentlemen sitting examinations may request and require cakes and ale. Pepsi and hamburgers were judged the modern equivalent. And uh, he sat there writing his examination and happily slurping away and chewing his Big Mac or whatever it was. Three weeks later, the university fined the person one pound of sterling silver for failing to wear a sword to the examination. (laughs) Sometimes people find Jesus dissatisfying. Not because he is, but because they're looking for satisfaction bread, drink in the wrong places. Well, the first response then the crowds hungry. For the wrong things. Second response, the disciples. Well, once again, John carefully weaves this into his story, and you'll find their response to Jesus' I am the bread of life uh, statement in verses 60 uh, to 66. And you'll see there that they find Jesus' teaching too hard. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? (laughs) Jesus replies by saying that there are harder teachings to come. Namely, verse uh, 62 the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection. In other words, if you think believing in Jesus as the bread of life is a hard teaching, wait till you get your mind around the fact that after Jesus' resurrection, he bodily ascended. But Jesus also replies to their objection by explaining the meaning of his teaching. He says, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. That is... Jesus is not literally saying we have to cannibalize Jesus to be saved. He is saying that we need to feast on Jesus by faith. But not all of them got this. Indeed, famously, Judas Iscariot, verse 71, did not get it. How is this possible? how is it possible that these disciples close to Jesus, at least for a season, did not believe in him? Jesus explains, verse 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Sometimes people find Jesus' teaching too hard not because it is, but because they do not understand that his word is what gives life. I quite like how Napoleon Bonaparte once put it. He wrote this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Now, there certainly are some aspects of Jesus' teaching that can appear like strong meat to young disciples. And many of them are alluded to right uh, here election, God's sovereignty over salvation, the ascension. But the main point that Jesus is making in this place is not about these. It is about who he is. But these disciples could not understand. They they were followers of Jesus for a while. They listened to his teaching. But once it became something spiritual, about believing in Him and so having life right now to the full that would be a part of eternal life forever. Well, that they just could not grasp. They thought they were spiritual but not religious, but really they were religious but not spiritual. They wanted to follow a rabbi who gave them clear rules and simple rituals. They could not get their minds around a person who was saying to believe in him would change their life spiritually. If the crowds reject Jesus because they're hungry for the wrong things, disciples sometimes reject Jesus because they find his teaching too hard. They're not able to engage with the spiritual nature of who Jesus is and what it will mean to follow him. They don't get it. So we have first the crowds, then the disciples, and then finally the twelve. So Jesus then in the story turns to the twelve, the inner core of his discipleship team, specially selected by him. And in a touch of his wonderful humanity, asks plaintively, Do you want to go away as well? The others were wandering off because they were hungry for the wrong things or because they found his teaching too hard. But these twelve, would they be loyal to Jesus? Of course, much of this passage is explaining the divinity of Jesus as the great I am. But here is a touch also of his humanity. He longed for their companionship and friendship. Well, Peter then answers with brilliant insight, verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That is, who else is there? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter believed Jesus for who he truly was. God's Holy One. The Anointed King. The Great I Am. Now, he may not at this point have been able to understand everything about the incarnation that you find, say, in a greater later confession, like Philippians chapter 2, theological depth there. But Peter knew Jesus had the words of eternal life, and he knew that Jesus was the Holy One of God himself. Now what generates this admirable confession of faith is that Jesus calls the question. So his request in verse 67 that they do not want to leave him is not only a touch of humanity on the part of Jesus. It's also a calling of the question. This is the thinking behind C.S. Lewis's famous description of the real options open to us. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You cannot. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. And you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, people follow Jesus when they come face to face with the question of Jesus. And realize there is no one else to whom they can go. The first response from the crowds, hungry for the wrong things. The second response from the disciples who found Jesus' teaching too hard. Third response was from the twelve. You, Peter said, have the words of eternal life. Well then. Is our response to Jesus more like that of the crowds, the disciples, or the twelve? In an interview with U.S. Magazine in 2007, Brad Pitt illustrated a popular version of the crowd's response today. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to me to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. Well, many people in the crowds today do think something like this. Uh, Who is this Jesus? Well, Joseph's son. Why should I worship him? It's, of course, a misunderstanding of the nature of God as well as a misunderstanding of the nature of Jesus. We as humans cannot be the center of the world. Only one person can rightly and healthily occupy that place of worship, Jesus. For Jesus to be the center is for the universe to function as it was intended and for us then to be joyful as we were made. This is the spiritual Copernican revolution, moving our life into orbit around the Son of God, Jesus, rather than making everyone else orbit around our own celebrity personalities. If we find ourselves tempted by the crowd's perspective on Jesus, remember this. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus offers us not less than we fear, but more than we dare hope. The disciples' misunderstanding is more subtle, but nonetheless still mistaken. Thomas Jefferson, uh, uh, the man who um, cut the miracles out of his Bible, once wrote a letter that uh, reminds me a little bit about this. From 1823, Thomas Jefferson wrote this, and the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. But may we hope that the dawn of reason and freedom of thought in these United States will do away with this artificial scaffolding and restore to us the primitive and genuine doctrines of this most venerated reformer of human errors. Well, yes, there are people who are religious, who enjoy the Christian morality who support ministers and churches, but who balk at the idea of the incarnation and at the worship of Jesus as the great I Am. They think of it as just another fable, one that comforts the small-minded and supports the weak-willed. It's a fine enough myth for our society, They find Jesus' teaching about himself too hard, as did these disciples. The trouble is that Jesus did not allow for this kind of half-hearted devotion. He did not come to teach people how to be moral citizens, There's no fire in that to start the Christian movement that turned the world upside down. The Stoics had long taught similar kinds of morality, and you can find it all already in the Old Testament. No, Jesus claimed more, not less. He is either mad, bad, or god Then there's the twelve, oft foolish they strayed, Peter who seldom opened his mouth other than to put his foot in it, here shows the brilliance of his leadership and the work of the Spirit in him. The twelve are not perfect, not righteous in themselves. Uh, No, the only difference between them and the crowds and the other disciples is that when Jesus calls the question, they answer in the affirmative, yes, you are the Holy One of God. They realize that Jesus alone had the words of eternal life. They understood that these words were spirit and were life. They did not follow Jesus merely for material sustenance like the crowds. They did not follow Jesus merely for religious rules like some of these disciples. They followed Jesus because he had the words of eternal life. And they actually, the pillars of the church, were spiritual. Because they believed and knew that Jesus was the Holy One of God. Let us pray together. Our Lord, we pray that you would help us to make the same confession. Would you, by your Spirit and according to your will, so work in our hearts that we would not be blind to the real meaning of your signs, that we wouldn't mistake them for simple material provision or getting out of you what we want. We pray also, Lord, that we wouldn't simply be religious and go to you only for your teaching and then find that when we really listen to what you're saying that it's too hard, too spiritual, too eternal. You make two great claims about yourself as the great I Am. Instead, would you so soften our hearts that we would confess and live out the truth that you are the Holy One of God and that you have the words of eternal life.